Hi, this is Janet Lansbury. Welcome to Unruffled. Today I have a special guest, Tom Hobson. He's affectionately known as Teacher Tom. He's an early childhood educator, international speaker, education consultant, author, teacher of teachers, and my very good friend. Tom's experience with preschoolers is vast, and his ability to see life through a child's eyes is invaluable. He's perfected this art, really, and our practices and philosophies are similar on so many levels, starting with trust in our children, valuing independent play, and encouraging organic learning. Welcome. Thank you so much for coming on. I'm so excited to be here. Oh, well, it's a delight to have you. There are a million things I would love to talk with you about. Uh, as you know, we're in a very difficult, strange time, especially for parents with young children, I feel. Oh, yeah. No, this is, um, these are unprecedented times. You know, all these parents are at home having to do the teacher role. I actually think probably most of the kids are pretty thrilled right now because how often do they get to just spend all day at home with their mom and dad? I mean, for a lot of kids, they've been going to preschool as long as they remember. And uh, this is a really special time for them. So I have a feeling more of the, the anxiety and fear has to do with the parents more than the kids right now. Because for the kids, this might be the best time of their young life. Yes, I've actually heard from a couple uh, families that have very highly sensitive children. And they're saying we're actually seeing more calm and less meltdowns. So Yes, it can absolutely work that way. And I think that's important for parents to know. Yeah. Just taking care of their physical needs and having that be your, your schedule and then releasing yourself of trying to do other type enrichment stuff. You had a wonderful post that thousands of people shared. It's called, there are plenty of things to worry about right now. Your preschooler's education isn't one of them. <laughs> and you shared this wonderful insight about your work, actually, and what you and other preschool teachers do, which is you are researchers of children. Well, and that's what you do too, right? That's the right yes. as well. To me, that's the piece that I think people don't understand about what we do, is that we're not there to instruct the children. We're not there to tell them what to do. What, really, what we're there is, is to study them and understand them, really to kind of figure out who this human being is we're with. And when you do that, you find out just how incredibly competent they are. I've already had parents say to me things like, my kid's five and they can fry eggs. And of course they can. They can do all kinds of things at this age. It's just we haven't given them the opportunity and now they're getting the chance. The other way I think about it is that it's about listening. It's about listening, not just with your ears, but with your whole soul, your whole being. Uh, because first of all, you demonstrate to the child you're connected to them, that you're there for them and you give them that sense of security but the other piece, too, is, is that's the only way you're really, really, really going to learn about them rather than just fall back on your preconceived notions. Absolutely. And my mentor, Magda Gerber, and her mentor, pediatrician Emmy Pickler, they talked a lot about sensitive observation. And it's a core aspect of the approach that I teach. And actually, in the classes that we do, which are parent-child classes that start from three-month-old babies. And we actually recommend doing these things before the baby's three months, but that's as young as they could be taken out into a class. Sensitive observation teaches us everything we need to know about our child and their needs, how to be affirming, how to support them in their learning, 
all these wonderful things. So I love that you were recommending for parents, if this hasn't been your approach, now's the perfect time Yeah, to focus in on that. And I loved how you said, let go of this thing where we have to say good job and try to shape what they're doing and kind of mold it the way we think it should go by encouraging them to do this over that or whatever. Yeah, like, we have this misperception yeah. that somehow kids don't do anything without us constantly either scolding them or cajoling them or encouraging them. I mean, you just hear that mantra. I mean, you've heard it all the time, right? You hear that good job thing going on over and over again. And some people can't, I mean, honestly, they're trying, but they can't stop. It's become so ingrained for most of us. And I yes. also want to say that all of this, what we're talking about right now, as far as observing and being researchers, and this works with adult relationships as well. Because listening, I mean, that's what Mr. Rogers always talked about. There's almost no way to distinguish between listening and love. And when you're listening to people, you learn so much about them. That's one of the things that I'm having a really hard time. You know, I come from, you know, being 58 years old and, and uh, having grown up in the culture I'm in, I'm used to being the one doing all the talking like I'm doing right now and mansplaining everything. And I've really learned a great deal of power and just sitting back and listening to people, power in, a, in the most positive way. I remember when my children, each of them got to the age where they weren't talking to their toys and having those conversations in front of me anymore. I couldn't observe them in that kind of play. Went a little more private or they didn't say it out loud so much and they didn't put it out there. And And I remember just how much I missed that. What I love about working with young children is that they put everything out there. They show you what kind of therapy they're doing with themselves. That's why I became a teacher. My daughter, you know, I was the stay-at-home parent with my girl. And when she got to be five or six and started going to kindergarten, I, I didn't know what to do with my time. And so I decided to become a teacher so I could hang out with those kids. I love that. I love your story. And you've, of course, been able to see how capable and competent children are and how they problem solve, how they are able to develop their own motor skills without really any assistance at all and developing their creativity. You know, I, I say, tell this story a lot. I say, you know, what would you think, right? Any parent, anybody out there, you watch somebody hovering over their two month old baby, tr you know, drilling them on vowel sounds, you would think they were crazy, right? Kids learn how to talk. You know, we would think they were crazy if they had their five month old out, out there and they were trying to teach them how to walk. And any doctor who recommended, we'd call him a quack. And I'm convinced the only reason that we believe we need schools to teach children how to read is because we've been using schools to teach them how to read for a long time. There's incredible amount of evidence out there that reading is a really natural human thing to do. So the, the older the children get, the, they're much more competent than we tend to think. And we actually have really infantilized young children, even infants, we've infantilized them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we've underestimated them. And that's the only way to know really what they're doing is to research. I mean, to me, that research is such a key part because everything children are doing, I mean, and when they are choosing their own activity, I should say. So that was what kind of the fundamental definition of play for me is a self-selected activity. And when children have chosen it, there's always behind everything they do, there's a question. They have a question they're trying to get answered. We might not know what the question is. They might not even know what the question is, but they are engaged in a scientific pursuit, trying to get some kind of answer to something. It, it might just be, can I do this? I'll never forget a little boy. He was walking along. He had one of these, it wasn't a traffic cone, but it was like these traffic cylinder things. And you, you know, I have a junkyard playground. You've seen it before. So, you know, it's kind of full of a mishmash of stuff. 
Anyway, this kid was carrying it on his shoulder and I watched him put it down on the ground and he arranged it really carefully. He had something in mind, but I didn't know what it was. And then he climbed up on this big crate that was beside it and he jumped off and crack, he broke it. And I said, Henry, what'd you do that for? And he said, well, I wanted to see if I could break it. <laughs> Duh. <laughs> he had set up a perfect experiment. He had an idea. He was curious. And children are doing this all day long when, when they are engaged, even when they're just watching shadows on the wall. They have a question behind that. What is that? How is that working? They, it, it's not formulated. And I think the hard part for this is so often as adults, then we want to go test them, right? We want to step in and say, well, what did you learn? What, you know, or maybe we ask in a more subtle way, but we try to figure out what they learn. And you know what? They might not know at that moment. And of course, you're working with children who are, in many cases, pre-verbal. So they, of course, can't tell you. And a lot of these things we learn. I mean, I know things I've learned in my life. Something happens to me in a moment. I don't learn it in that moment. It might be six months later or 12 months later when suddenly it clicks for me. Oh, aha. You know, that's what was going on back then. And I think that happens with children all the time. Yes, absolutely. Really, what we're talking about is trying to shift this overriding idea that learning is something that is taught to a child by an adult and that that's our job. And what we've seen a million times over with children is that actually the things we're teaching are more through our modeling and the way that we interact with them. But in terms of all those skills, they are self-taught. If we provide the environment that allows for that and encourages that, they are self-taught. And what this also does for parents, and this is what I really want to help get across, which you did get across so beautifully in your article that we're talking about, that this is a more fun way to be. This is more joyful. You get to bond deeply with your child by understanding your child and just affirming whatever it is that they're doing and that trust that you give them. And it can stop being a chore when we start to get into it and we realize this is the joy. This is why I had children, so that I could discover them and learn about them. I don't know if you're familiar with Alison Gopnik. Oh, absolutely. Psychologist. I was rereading um, The Gardener and the Carpenter not long ago. And she mentions the fact that the word parenting is actually a brand new word. She did a search, used a Google search to go back through all kinds of documents back through time and found very few uses of the word parenting before about 1962. And it's really significant because the truth is, is that up until that point, we talked about being a parent. Being a parent was a relationship we had with our children. But by turning it into a verb, by making it parenting, suddenly it made it a job we had to do. In any of our other significant relationships, we don't do them as a verb. We don't do friending. We don't do husbanding. We don't do childing. But suddenly it's a job. And, and her metaphor is really beautiful because she says, you know, like once we've made it a verb, it's turned parents into carpenters. And a carpenter, if you're going to build a table, there's certain standards you have to meet. It has to be flat on top. It has to have four legs. It has to be functional. It has to be sturdy. And you're going to be judged by how that turns out. Whereas when we just are a parent in a relationship, we're more like the gardener. We plant the seed. We keep it safe. We water it. Make sure it gets some sun. But other than that, it's the seed's job to grow. And I think that we have lost sight of that role of parents. We're always about parenting when really... It's just about having a relationship with our child and understand we, we shouldn't be judging people for how their children turn out. It's more like the relationship. I'm not going to get judged by how my friend Janet Lansbury turns out. <laughs> you know what I mean? I'm not going to be judged how my wife turns out, but I'm going to be judged by how good that relationship is. 
And at the same time this has happened, we have lost our grandmas. We suddenly moved away from our grandparents. Everybody grew, you know, is raising their kids without grandparents' influence. And you know, humans evolved this postmenopausal period for females because it takes a lot of adults to raise children. You can't just do it with one or two people. But we've broken up our society to such a degree that we have the adults doing their work in one corner, the kids doing their school in another corner, the elderly people are all in the nursing home somewhere. To me, that has been a foundational shift. And it's one of the things I'm trying to encourage people to get back to is understanding that you cannot raise a child by yourself. You need your whole village. And that involves, hopefully, if you don't have grandmas, find some people like that because older women know a lot about raising kids. That's true. And so what you're saying is that not only do we have less support, but we are putting more pressure on ourselves and judgment on ourselves to do a job that feels like it's supposed to be very active and that we are responsible for so much more than we need to be. So, you know, if we can't have more of a village, at least we can free people of this other idea that is making our life so much harder as parents, which is that, oh, my friend is doing this many playgroups and classes, and I have to do that. One of the questions I've received lately from a few people, and I wanted to answer it somewhere, so maybe I'll answer it here, is concern, understandable concern that because their child isn't going to preschool and able to have play dates, that they're going to miss being social. They're going to be lonely and not get enough of that in their lives. And I loved what Magda Gerber used to say, which is, sure, a group situation can be helpful once in a while, or one friend over can be great for a young child, but they don't need that every day. That's something that can happen in preschool, but they learn social skills through their parents primarily. Mm -hmm. All the interactions that we have with our children, how they see us interacting with each other and with them. And, you know, the neighbor that now at this point, of course, we're just waving to over the fence and maybe talking to or the people we're seeing when we're on our walk and we can say hello. And that's really all they need. Also, maybe it could be that parents, we have this sense of loss and we're maybe projecting that, that our child is going to feel it. But children really don't. They don't need that as much. Yeah, they might miss the school and teacher Tom and their friends, you know, but... That's why you have to be a researcher, right? Because some kids are going to demand more and some kids don't want more. Um, I know my daughter, was she was as young as three years old, she used to say to me, you know, because I'm a homebody, I would just hang around the house with her sometimes and she would start saying to me, we need to go somewhere. <laughs> so we would go to a park or something, you know, I would go somewhere with her because she would want to get out of the house and go somewhere. Didn't necessarily mean hanging out with other people, but I think that's hopefully that's one of the blessings that comes out of this time as parents do get to understand their children more and get to spend more time with them. I'm hoping that more and more people take on this opportunity. And I understand that the people who are going to be able to do this are the more privileged people, uh, people who have the opportunity because, you know, many of us are out there scrambling to make money right now, and it might not be a good chance to connect with your kids, but your kids are home. And th there's no better time now than to, than to try to connect with them. And I'm hoping the legacy of this is that kids look back on this as one of the best times of their lives. Yeah, I, th I think that's very possible. We had a situation once, of course, no comparison to this, but we were doing some much needed updating on our home. And we were given a place to stay by a relative who wasn't using it anymore. And it was 
not in great shape and it was tiny and I had my two daughters and my husband and I um, and our dog all staying there and we all actually got very, very sick. I've had the worst flu I've ever had. The weather was pretty extreme in this area and it was it was rough. It felt very, very rough. And my older daughter was, uh, I think, about six at that time. And when we finally moved back into our house and this luxury now comparatively, she missed that situation so much. She missed us all being close together. She missed that. It was romanticized to her as this wonderful time. And I think that's true for all of us. I mean, in a way, one of my fondest memories is when my whole family moved from the East Coast to the West Coast. And, you know, we spent a week and a half driving across the country in two cars And that intimacy of us all being together in the same hotel rooms and eating in the same restaurants and driving, it was just incredibly bonding. Uh, I would not trade that experience for anything in the world. We could have got there faster by plane, but boy, that was a better way to go. Yeah. And that's a child's perspective. And that's what we can understand if we see our role with our own children, our role in their play as researchers. You, with all the research you've done, you probably see situations from a child's perspective, or you can put yourself there pretty easily, right? Well, I sure try to, because a lot of times that helps me understand my own perspective. There's a purity to the way children are looking at things. You know, there's a lot of aspects of our world that taints what we're doing. One of which is this constant pressure to earn a living, the constant pressure to get food on the table at a certain time, all these scheduled things that we have in our lives. And I think that it's really great to be able to step back and and let the children lead in that regard. And to me, that's what I mean by learning from children so much is that very often when I don't know what to do, I just shut up and sit back and let the kids lead. Because they'll show you. They will show me a different perspective on it. And they usually have a better idea than I have. Oh, yeah, yeah, much better. And though I've tried to be a practiced observer with children, ideas always come to me, how I could make it better, how I could you know, make them learn more, some interesting twist on it. And it's an interesting, fun challenge to try to let go of that and then get the surprise. From an adult perspective, the way I think about this is if someone was doing all that kind of stuff to you as an adult, we would call it unsolicited advice. (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) And I think you could almost argue that almost everything that happens in schools is unsolicited advice. Nobody likes it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have any thoughts about making this role an easier transition for parents or? Well, I just think what I'm saying to people is just right now, just relaxing and, and, and trying to get a rhythm with your child, right? I mean, we're so focused on the idea of a schedule and schedules are, you know, kids do need some predictability and all that kind of stuff. But instead of dictating a a schedule, I'm trying to have people think about it as creating a rhythm. And I think creating those yes spaces that you talk about Um, And I think outdoors is one of the best yes spaces there are, you know, at your backyard or whatever. I'm encouraging people that they should get out there and walk your neighborhood. You can stay six feet apart from people. Don't go to the playground because that's where the people are crowded in. But just kind of wander, you know, wander your way through the, uh, you know, through your neighborhood and see new things. Walk the dog more often. You mentioned before role modeling. And this is a great time to do some role modeling. To me, this is what a great time to pick up your DIY projects and start repairing broken things around the house. You know, get out your sewing kit and start darning socks or, you know, hammer the baseboards back in that are coming off or repaint a wall 
just doing a lot of those kinds of projects around the house. And the kids can take part in that. They can engage with it, or at least they're going to see you taking care of your world in a different way. It is not unprecedented in the scope of human history to get work done while your kids are there. Uh, in fact, for most of human history, our whole hunter-gatherer past for 95% of our existence, there was no distinction between work and play. The children were just there with the adults and they pitched in where they could or didn't if they chose not to. And you know, to me, I think that if we can give kids a chance for the novelty of being home alone with mom and dad to wear off a little bit, uh, we're going to find ourselves in a position where you're going to, again, really discover how competent they can be, how productive they can be, and how much they want to participate in the real stuff of life. I, I find myself so often frustrated about you know, the, the abundance of toys that children have right now. And the truth is, is that children do not need toys. They much prefer the real world and the real things we find there. When you're outside, the leaves and the sticks and the rocks are what they want. You know, if you're in your garage, and you have a toy lawnmower and a real lawnmower, every kid's going to play with real lawnmower. They don't want to play with the toy one. If you're sweeping up around the house, hand them a broom. They're going to participate in the sweeping up. They might not do jobs up to your standards, but that's not the point. The point is to allow children to develop their competencies where they see fit. That's great advice. Thank you so much again, Tom, for coming on and sharing your wisdom. You always have an interesting perspective to share with us. Well, and thank you, Janet. This has been such a lot of fun. I hope people get something out of it. Well, you have a great rest of your day, and thank you so much again. Take care, Janet. Bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Please check out some of the other podcasts on my website, JanetLansbury.com. They're all indexed by subject and category, so you should be able to find whatever topic you might be interested in. And both of my books are available in paperback at Amazon, No Bad Kids, Toddler Discipline Without Shame, and Elevating Child Care, A Guide to Respectful Parenting. You can get them in ebook at Amazon, Apple, Google Play, or barnesandnoble.com, and in audio at audible.com. As a matter of fact, you can get a free audio copy of either book at Audible by following the link in the liner notes of this podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We can do this.